RJ Bell here, back, thank God. You know, I didn't listen to it. How did it go with the uh, the torture of the listeners yesterday, or last week, Mackenzie? Only several dozen people tweeted AJ saying, hey, uh, <laughs> get, your, get over to Vegas, please. That's just dozens and do- several dozen. <laughs> Four <laughs> score and seven. <laughs> well, listen. Sometimes you got to just feel the love and, you know, putting those two on the mic. I tell you, though, Mackenzie had a good day today. You'll be hearing some of that. But we got a Hitman best bat. We've got an Essler best bat. And we've got an NBA aftermath. I mean, we're taping here on Thursday, and it was after the Sixers gave up a monster lead for the second game in a row facing elimination, and the Utah Jazz at home with the best player on the other team out, and the line went up to nine, and playoff P. Ooh, I don't like playoff P. But, hey, got to give the man his due. And we dig into that in a really, I think, compelling case about the Sixers, how the whole trust the process is going to have the ultimate test in how they assess this season because as a number one seed over 72 games if you're results oriented you're going to say hey those are pretty good results if you're process oriented you're going to say hey that's pretty good because we're following our process but then the playoffs come and a 98.7 percent chance of winning which is what the algorithm said when that goes down is that because of how bad the team that just got the number one seed is? Is it because in the playoffs they can't deal with it? Or is it the ultimate in results thinking? And thus, even if they do get eliminated, it should be an automatic, maybe, if you believe the results are really good, an automatic, hey, let's run it back. I don't think that's what it would be, and I don't think many people think it should be that, but shouldn't it be? We'll talk about it. First, though, I want to get into, I think, something that feels like it's more of a societal thing, but it actually is about gambling and winning. And the main topic here is changing ethos, changing values. You know, a couple years ago on SOV, I said... The numbers that matter to the new generation of players is not titles as much as Instagram likes or some other approximation of that. And at the time, it felt like, oh, that's crazy. But but now that you hear some of the comments with the, hey, you know, the tit- I like to win titles. I want to win, but it's not the only thing. And it gets you thinking about what you know what is so bad about aging because you know there's Ponce de Leon was around written for a reason right there's people from the beginning of time saying hey I don't want to get old now obviously if you've ever been around someone that's really old you know or really sick you you know that comes with age but if you're 90 some you can say I I'd rather be you know I'd rather be pretty much any age than 92 or 95. But, but, but I'm talking about a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 30-year-old. Why 
you know, you could make the case when you're 35 that you're in the prime of your life. I think that'd be a pretty good case. Uh, you can make the case in your 50s if you're an executive or someone that has to accrue knowledge uh, and become learned that that's going to be your best because you're going to have the synapses mostly still and then you're going to have all that knowledge. But you don't hear many 50-year-olds talking about, you know, I guess Oprah maybe might have them cheering the prime of their life. But what is it about aging I personally think it's more or it's a lot about the change of ethos that, that there's just a, 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 it's a different generation. Every time there's a new generation and not only is the music different and the movies different and the comedy's different, but at times more than others, the values change and to me, as I watch the sporting landscape, the idea that the players don't care the most about titles, and we can debate if that's true. Mackenzie, you're 31. Spencer, how old are you? 24 years old. Okay. So we got some young bucks here. Keep it succinct. But how? to, to what degree do you think my hypothesis that the newest generation is less interested in winning titles. They want to win them. The question is at what expense? And let me pose the following question to you. If a typical new generation player had a chance to have Tim Duncan's career or Kobe Bryant's career, and obviously with Kobe, we're talking about his career, not his post-career tragedy. My gut feeling is that almost every player would want to be Kobe. And if you count the rings, well, I guess Kobe has five too, right? Yep, both got five. Yeah, but... Uh, Duncan's got four finals MVPs to Kobe's yeah, three. Yeah, and plus, let's be candid. Anyone that, won, uh, anyone that has any common sense understands that Shaq was the force in the first three. Okay, but let's. this is interesting because you could make the case that they're tied, but you could also make the case you can't say Kobe performed better in the playoffs, in the title runs. At, at minimum, if you say nothing matters but count the rings, they're even. And in any other perspective, you're going to say Duncan had it, you know, did a little better. But my thought is you're going to have 90-plus percent like would rather Kobe's career and the question becomes why and what does that say about the new generation? Mackenzie first. A hundred percent. I think 95% of NBA players right now would pick Kobe's career. And I think it has everything to do with what you're saying with marketability. Guys like obviously Michael Jordan and LeBron James and things that they've done. No one really talks about Hakeem Olajuwon. You know, not very flashy. To me, number two greatest player of all time. Whoa, but, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Hakeem Olajuwon is the second best player. He's better than Kareem. In my book, yep. Well, yeah, yeah. We understand they played. They played First of all, you the, don't have a book. You don't have a book. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right. But maybe maybe a self-published book, but it's not a book of basketball for sure. So my my question is, are you are we talking about heights? Because I think you could almost make the case that Hakeem during those two years, the two title years, and maybe a year or two before, 
reached a height that really was perhaps second, perhaps. Yeah, in my book. But under that theory, (laughs) under that theory, like a Bernard King would rank very high. Um, and, and, and an Iverson would rank pretty high. You know, I guess the question is what, how much time do you need? Would a half a year be enough at the highest level? Like Mark Fidrick, the bird, you might not remember him. I don't either, but I had the baseball card, uh, you know, retrospectively when I, I think it was the 76, uh, top set. And, uh, you know, he had a half season, look up the Mark, the bird Fidrick. He had a half season was like, you know, 14 and two or something. And I don't think he ever threw better than that after. And, or I don't think he threw at that level even the second half of the year and never did again. But that run was noteworthy. So how long do you need? I think you need four or five playoff runs. Four or, and so Hakeem over four or five playoff runs. Uh, I think you're stretching it. There. In 86, they were huge underdogs to the Lakers and Kareem. Hakeem stepped up and they made the finals with a. He stepped. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. (laughs) What? So to make the finals in the modern era, there's been what forty or so seasons in the modern era. So there's been eighty teams that make the finals. All right, forty-one and forty lost. So to be amongst the losers of forty teams and a team with Ralph Sampson, you're saying that makes you the second best player of all time. I don't get the math there. Not only that, but there's four or five, four playoff runs where Hakeem was just amazing. Kevin Durant just put up 76 points, rebounds, and assists. You might need to study a little bit of history of the NBA. I love studying the NBA. I will watch any tape you want to send me. I love it. I I swallow it up. Well, again, watching grainy footage on YouTube is not quite, (laughs) is is not quite, you know, deep dive. Have you read Bill Simmons' book of basketball? Parts of it. So you had too much work for you, huh? <laughs> All right. So anyway, moving off of what exactly did Hakeem's um, exploits have to do with this conversation? He's just not discussed at all. Whereas a guy like Kobe, and I feel like Tilton Duncan, it's not going to be discussed very much in 15 years at all. But a guy with flash, a guy that leads Sports Center, that's what players want to, that's what they but admire. But was Hakeem being discussed when you were 16 years old? 15 years ago, what, you know, so let's say 2006, was Hakeem being discussed a lot then? No. So that doesn't make it generational then. It means it's always been flash cells. Yes. So I'm not sure why this generation prioritizes it more, but I get the same sense. (laughs) That could have been the answer. Spencer? I would say, yeah, my generation would love to be Kobe because it was all about him and the Lakers and the pizzazz, and then Tim Duncan was more about the team. And when you look on TikTok, people are willing to do anything for fame these days. And, yeah, I just think it appeals more the way Kobe played the game and the way he carried himself. Well, if you want to see people doing anything for fame, you look at Pornhub, <laughs> not TikTok. But okay. All right. All right. So, you know, I guess as we're moving on a three-year uh, you know, in September, anniversary of Straight Out of Vegas, I'm thinking about how things have evolved during the time of me doing a daily show. And it dawns on me that at the beginning of that show, at, uh, early on, I think it was the um, Zeke Elliott holdout when he went to Cancun famously. And the idea, uh, the question I asked somewhat rhetorically was, where does it end? 
Like if a guy who literally just becomes eligible for an extension after three years says, I'm going to Cancun, call me when you've got the Brinks truck loaded up. And the fact that that, that gut results, that that was a smart move, though Cancun wasn't, but it was a smart move to play chicken with Jerry Jones, that is something that you got to wonder. And the discussion now is, and it was just out on The Athletic today, fired Stan Van Gundy, and apparently Zion's family did it, thought that Stan Van Gundy coached a little too hard. And you know what? That's why Stan Van Gundy's gone. That, that the player empowerment era has created an environment in which a second-year player who, quite frankly, has done played zero playoff games, who quite frankly, though has had amazing flashes, no doubt about it, no doubt, point Zion, amazing. And you can extrapolate out to some kind of winning, but you know what? I never saw Michael Jordan leave the bubble for, you know, as the reports say, very questionable reasons. You know, oh, look, we're not going to make the playoffs. They were in the bubble. Oh, family emergency. My mom's calling. I got to run home. The tackle football game's getting a little tough. <laughs> <laughs> we're going tackle? Hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, now listen, he's a kid, so maybe he's going to grow out of it. But you know what? An entire franchise is being held hostage, and that's probably not even, that's too extreme, is, is, is being dictated to by the whims of a kid. And you could say, well, kids used to play back in the day. And it's like, yeah, but they weren't dictating. And now we go on to what's happening with the Dallas Mavs. And The Athletic, again, comes out with an article talking about Harala Bob, the former professional gambler. There was an ESPN uh, profile on him. I think it was 2013. He did a lot of derivative bets and found some first half, second half um, inefficiencies and made a lot of money. And he's been with the Dallas Mavs for a couple of years as the analytics guy. But the article that came out a few days ago talked about that uh, Volgaris is his last name, um, was, uh, had a lot of power that was in a way a shadow GM. And in the time since, but what it also said was that Luca didn't like him because one time he said, settle down, and Luca screamed, per the athletic, don't ever mother effing tell me to settle down. But, you know, <laughs> it wasn't mother effing. And I find it interesting, and we'll see what happens because it looks like the power struggle when um, Donnie, oh, I'm having a mental block. Westfall, I'm sorry, what's uh, Donnie Nelson, the Nelson, former GM? Yeah, Don Nelson's, yeah. Is uh, Donnie Nelson, who has been the GM since what, 2004, I think? I mean, it's been like over 15 years out. And then literally the head coach, Carlisle, taking them to a title in 11, out. And I was listening to a blog of 
Dallas Mavs beat writers. <laughs> yes. And they were talking about uh, that Luke is the most powerful man or powerful person with the Mavs. And then someone said, well, you know, uh, of course, uh, you know, except for Mark Cuban. And then they talked about it for a minute. Yeah, Mark Cuban can do whatever he wants. But de facto, in truth, who's going to get their whims met more? If Mark Cuban has a whim and Luca has a whim, who do you think's going to win? Cuban's going to say, Luca, take the seat. Mark Cuban already said he would divorce his wife in favor of Luca if that was the choice. Well, I'm not so sure saying that was a good thing, but okay. <laughs> he might get tested on it. It might, it might be like, um, uh, what was that movie called? Uh, it had Jerry Tartanian in it. It had, uh, uh, it, it had Nicolas Cage in it. It was like, it wasn't indecent proposal but it was the same concept they had flying elvises look look that honeymoon up. in vegas yes honeymoon in vegas and you know it, it's that kind of it might that might be that kind of setup who knows soon enough but the fact is luca has more power than the owner now am i lamenting that well i am especially if the players don't care about winning as much as they care about Instagram likes or MTV or whatever is going on these days that make, you know, that is um, dating a Kardashian. That is more personal. That's more, oh, look, if, if I can't, if I'm watching sports and they don't care about winning, then why do I care about winning other than I got to bet on the game? But as a fan, why would I care? And I don't think the sports world gets it. And this might be a 10, 12-year thing, but as it becomes more and more evident that most of these players care less about titles than they do other things, though, again, not saying they don't care about titles. I don't know how the fans stay so engaged, but I also know the following, that the teams that have players that feel that way I think are going to be teams not to bet in the playoffs. And that if you look at there's teams out there and you look at what Brady's doing, I mean, Brady had a hell of a, it's easy to say, oh, Brady was like Manning's Super Bowl last year. It wasn't. PFF, I think, had him graded second. Yep. So he had a hell of a year. But you know what else? He didn't have to win a title because Aaron Rodgers was graded first, if I'm not mistaken. And you know what? He didn't win a title. And, oh, speaking of Aaron Rodgers, I don't think anything he's doing right now is conducive to a title. Because if he goes to another team, there's no way, even if it's a Denver or whatever, that, in, that, that he's going to be able to integrate in a way. Or I don't want to say no way. The odds of him off of a 26-6 and two-year regular season run, if he would have caused no problems, not talked about a beautiful mystery... And you might say he's been so aggrieved. Really? I have the ultimate, you know, the riddle of the Sphinx used to exist. Well, I guess it still exists. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It involves aging, by the way, and I didn't bring that around. It just happened. But the fact of the matter is that I want to propose a new riddle of the Sphinx, which is what is Aaron Rodgers mad about and what has changed about that 
since they lost in the conference championship game because he was able to keep... I don't think much happened after that because you know what? He started mouthing off in the interview after the game. Right. So he was able to deal with whatever was happening to not say a word about it, and then it becomes more important than winning. I could see wanting some, hey, you want to get someone fired? Go for it. But at this point, when you have your receivers coming out of, you know, not attending the beginning of, training and you're in Hawaii and there's all this, you know, you're doing golf tour. Anyone that thinks his focus is winning, good luck. Bet the Packers. Wait when he decides he's going back there, maybe play the futures. But I'm going to play Brady much, much sooner than I'm going to play Aaron Rodgers. And I do think you see some players that are shockingly focused on winning in a way that, that, you know, look at Chris Paul. Is it a coincidence that Chris Paul is got a team that he's you know, I guess we'll see what the COVID situation is for him, but has a team that some people would say should be favored at this point. That guy wants to win, even though he hasn't won, he obviously wants to win. And when you have, Listen, family should, can have opinions, but should they? It's one thing if Zion's dictating, and it's probably foolish. But if the problem is he's coaching too hard, it's a problem. And I think that to kind of tie it all up, that it makes me feel more distanced from these games, but it also makes me root harder for the guys that really do seem to still old-school care. Like, who's on that list? I mean, I, I'm disconnected from baseball at this point. So, I mean, I guess it's NBA or NFL. Um, huh. I feel like Julian Edelman was on that list as far as a guy that only cares about winning. Yeah, but I, it's not even really only cares about – I mean, that's a higher bar. I'm saying that winning is the most important thing. Mm, I see. I mean, to me, as long as winning's the most important thing, then me and the fan, if I'm a, you know, a Steelers, as I am fan, that I'm aligned. You know, I think Heinz Ward, I think Ike Taylor. When I think back to Ryan Clark, I don't love Ryan Clark on TV, but I love him as a safety. I, kind of, I mean, listen, you want to talk about a good example is the idea that he played in Denver, had sickle cell, they said there's a chance it could, you know, whatever. Like, you know, I don't think it's metastasized, but it's like have a real bad reaction and it's life-threatening. And he played. And you know what? If I was, you know, his brother or his, you know, anyone in his life, I would say no. Now, if it's a Super Bowl, now it's a conversation. It's a regular season game. Guy played. You know, uh, you think about, you know, the... NBA players, McHale, and, you know, walking with a limp to play in a playoff game. Now, you know, you look at Thriller Manila, right? Now, I know those make for some of the most amazing sporting events, and you can lament and say, oh, that's like gladiators, and we're exploiting, and even if there's millions, it's exploitive. And you know what? There might be a point there. But it's a far cry from the Thriller Manila versus hey, I'm leaving, I'm not going to play basketball. I know you, you guys still pay me, but, I, you know, I got some problems at home. What problems? Nah, can't talk about it. How about now? Nope, can't talk about it. 
it's a different thing. And I know, and I always caveat this, I know that some players have been exploited years ago, more even more. And then you look at this Denver situation with the guy that was training off facility and they canceled his contract and, you know, like 15 million. I don't understand that. I don't, I mean, I get it's in the contract, but why take that PR hit? And and then I think, well, maybe Zion's right to take his millions and run. And maybe he is, because I, I tell you this, I wouldn't be giving it back. But it doesn't, I, I guess the question is, you should take your money no matter what, and if it's yours, if it's due you. But if you have the choice to earn it or not, you should want to earn it. And earning it is trying to win. And I think more than ever, what we're seeing with the Dallas Mavs, that Luka, who hasn't won anything, has has he won a playoff series? Not yet. Zero. Oh, and two. Zero playoff series. And listen, this guy, I mean, you got a guy like Bill Simmons who really knows his stuff. I mean, he's got a pretty good book, McKenzie. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with it. But the fact is that, that, that he says that Luca is the best offensive player at his age that he's ever seen. And he has how many playoff wins? Zero point zero. And he's dictating Mark Cuban's marital situation. <laughs> I don't want to bet on that team. And you know what? When I look back at LeBron and think, what did he maybe do wrong that has him, you know, where he's clearly, unless you're insane, not the best player of all time when maybe he had the skills to be. It feels like that from even the early on, but certainly after like 2010, he didn't want to get coached hard. That any coach, what was that, David Blatt, any coach that wasn't in his hip pocket that he was effectively coaching. And if he thinks he should be a coach, great. Somehow Jordan didn't think that. And... It strikes me that the, you know, they say character is what you do when no one's looking. I think that ultimate winning is driven by the things you do when you don't have to do them to still be a success. And LeBron's a great success, and I think Hakeem Olajuwon exempted is, <laughs> is reasonably the second best player of all time. And I think it's almost impossible not to have him in your top five, even if you're a skeptic. But it feels like to me that if he would have... And listen, he pushed... And these people, these players often push themselves in ways they're comfortable with. Like LeBron spends a million and a half a year on his body, and that's not all sitting there and getting massage. He's doing a lot of work. But it's work he wants to do. The work you don't want to do is the difference maker oftentimes. And, you know, it seems to me that, again, Jordan gets glorified, but I think in a way rightfully so. And I'm looking for Jordans when I bet because if it's a coincidence that Tom Brady's winning a title, if it's a coincidence Chris Paul's running through, you know, and I look at, you know, I even look at Utah, which might not end up winning this series. In fact, you know, they're underdogs right now. But I think that team wants to win. It feels like that team wants to win. You got, and I look at, I look at Trey Young. 
And even though in some ways, if you say, oh, no, RG, you're an old fogey, you're going against, you know, you, you got a, the old school mentality. And it's like, yeah, with winning I do. But I look at Trey Young and I don't see anything else except his will to win that's old school. And you know what? I respect the hell out of him. A lot more than I did before the playoffs. I didn't know. I, I'm not watching a ton of Hawks games. But I tell you this, he has shown a guts and a willingness to, now we'll see if he has the ability to, you know, maybe get some players on the team to challenge. You know, the debate has been he's wanted to shoot too much, even though he can pass well. But Trey Young, to me, is if I'm a Hawks fan, I'm proud of Trey Young on my team, and I want to root for that guy. I'm not so sure I want to root for you know, even though he just had a great game, and let's give him credit, even a Durant. It doesn't feel like Durant's number one goal is winning. Though it, it seems to be when it comes to compiling the teams is how can he win with the least amount of responsibility on his shoulders? And what we saw was when he had the responsibility, he had maybe his best game of all time. Who knows how many of those games he would have had if he would have taken that responsibility more so and I, I, you can say count the rings. I don't know. What you, what's your position on Durant, McKenzie? I really believe him and find it interesting that he says, my priority is not winning games or titles. My priority is getting better at basketball, and be, which is related, but it's slightly different, being the best basketball player at the end of the day. It's very, that could always it's be. very zen. Yeah, yeah, it is. The whole Brooklyn team has a Buddhist vibe. Is that what you call, is that flat earth as Buddhist? <laughs> yeah, you got some sage in there. You know, everybody's feeling good. I got to be honest with you. Someone could debate me or I could debate myself that maybe the purest form of caring is to want to be the best basketball player. But you know what? It does seem coincidental that being that best basketball player means he doesn't challenge himself very hard. And I don't get that part. Because I've always understood, I mean, what I, in my life, and what most people understand is that when you play, when, when you fight the toughest fights is when you grow the most, right? You play ping pong with a half-size paddle, that's tough. And when you get the full-size paddle, you're in complete control. That's what some training they do, if the movies are correct, I don't understand how this would be. I mean, I guess I could see if, if, if it was him making a pass. Like, because that debate gets interesting with what LeBron does. Because I think LeBron actually has gotten a bum rap when it comes to, like, not taking the last shot. Because the best basketball play would be to kick it out in spots. Remember, Jordan did twice, right? Once with Paxson and once with Kerr. And the, oh, memorable shots, if I recall. Yep. And... It's a situation that Jordan, though, you know, may, if anything, it brings it full circle, which is Phil Jackson taught him that. And it took years. And then that's probably why he won some titles. And that's exactly the kind of lesson LeBron didn't need. But LeBron needed some other lessons that a Phil Jackson type could have taught him, but he wasn't interested. Fascinating that Steve Kerr actually said in, the, in the, one of the last games they played together, hey, KD, you know, Phil Jackson always told Michael Jordan, you got to pass, you got to pass. Kevin Durant did not like Steve Kerr. I wonder if, you know, trying to compare him to Jordan and compare him to Phil Jackson and his style is why that was one of the sources of their rift. 
or maybe just challenging him. I mean, because it, yeah. it, it seems like, but again, I do believe the guy, the guy obviously has come, worked hard to come back from the Achilles. Though, again, the question was, and we brought this up on SOV, why didn't he play in the bubble last year? Because he was ready. I mean, just do the calendar count. It was time. And it was like, well, no big, you know, maybe the best basketball wasn't going to happen in the bubble. <laughs> All right. So the kind of metaphysical, but I think as practical as anything, because if you're not accounting for the will to win, when you bet title odds or you're betting in the playoffs, I think you're making a mistake. And you look at the results recently, and it feels like the differentiation between those win at all costs or almost any cost, uh, the differentiation between that and the Instagram crowd is getting broader and broader. Okay, speaking of the NFL, the hitman has a team that has a coach that I think, quite frankly, has been systematically scapegoated and demonized. Let's listen. Best bet, Vikings to win the NFC North, plus 275. I like it all the way down to plus 250. Everyone knows it by now, but Minnesota is my favorite buy low team going into next season. This is another way to attack the futures market on them. Minnesota returns nearly every starter on offense that ranked fourth in the NFL in yards per play last season. Defensively, they get back Michael Pierce, Daniil Hunter, Anthony Barr, and Eric Hendricks from injury, and added in free agency Patrick Peterson and Sheldon Richardson. I'm down on Chicago, and I'm really down on Detroit. So the only threat I see to Minnesota is Green Bay. And if Rodgers stays with the Packers, I think this has value. And if he doesn't, we're getting the division favorite at great plus 275 odds. Best bet, Vikings, NFC North champs, plus 275. This, to me, is a great lesson in how a better prices uncertainty the most common question i get when i'll do a radio spot that is not a typical betting spot it's more general is how do you bet so early if you don't know this you don't know that you don't know what the draft is yeah let's say if you're betting before the draft and my answer is simple what a better does is price uncertainty and it's always a debate between do you want to find out more and or do you feel like you're better suited to not know it and you have an edge? I mean, imagine playing Hold'em and the choice was it was dealer's choice every time you were the button. And the only choice was you could look at one card or two cards. And meaning maybe there'd be a variation in the game. You just look at one of your whole cards and the other one you're not allowed to look at and the dealer decides every time. Well, some people would play better seeing one card. Some people would play better seeing two cards. I'm not sure thinking about it, how, who, if that would help a better player or not. Because right off the go, I would think no, the one card, because it's like he's got less information. It almost becomes random. But maybe the best player could figure out things. That's interesting. I'll have to ask a real poker superstar about that one. Huh. Mackenzie, you're... Net lifetime losing at one two doesn't <laughs> doesn't account for it. Doesn't. Let me set the record straight. I was up dozens of dollars in my career as a one two poker player. Dozens. 
Well, at least yeah, kind of like the dozens of people that, <laughs> that texted AJ, help us, help us. But the hitman saying, listen, Rogers, his possibility of departing, his possibility of holding out, of retiring, of at minimum being a distraction, it helps the Vikings. And remember, the hitman, and some of you may, gave out the Vikings at plus 450 in March. Right here, you might say, well, how can he give it out at plus 275? Well, because the circumstances have changed. The question is, is there value now? And the question is, now this gets complex with the bankroll, but have you been exposed too much? So I wouldn't say double best bet it, but if you haven't, I think, you know, if you follow the hit, man, for sure here, you would. And even if you bet the first time, maybe, you know, you throw 20% more on it. I get it. A lot of people that think they're sharp are going to say, how can you not take the, you know, if you don't get the best number, you can't play it. I think in general, there's some truth to that for 99% of people, meaning this, if you can't price the point spread so strongly that you can say, I don't, this line's moved four points, but you know what? We're at pick them and this line should be minus four. And the fact that it was plus four was a rare thing. We've bet it down, and, and now it gets complex again with the bankroll and the Kelly and all that. But the reason that that's only the top 1% is because the odds makers don't make that many big mistakes, and thus if you don't get the first number, it means you're going to win less than the person that bet at the first number, and even that person doesn't necessarily win a ton. So just getting this, the second-best number tells you that your chance of winning goes down. So unless you're winning already, why not just only bet when you get the best number? I think that's a very valid approach. But if you really know how to price, you could the market should can't tell you anything that should matter because you know what the how much it, hey, what did it open at? I don't care, right? Do I have enough if somehow they hadn't bet yet, they were asleep, Rip Van Winkle or whatever, Somehow they know the price is if you know, I mean, think of it like this. If you had a car and you had, uh, and the market said it was worth 20,000 and someone was asking 30 for it, you'd think that's crazy. You're not getting the best price. But if there's someone in the other office that's already signed a conditional purchase for 35,000, do you buy the car for 30? If you can't get it for 20 in time, yeah. And you don't even think about it. You don't even think about, oh, but it could be 20 somewhere else. I'm not getting the best of it. You're getting the best of it because you can sell it for 35. If you can price it yourself, and again, this is a high bar, you don't care about what the market did. Now, you maybe, or certainly you consider it as part of your calculation, but... Anyone that will tell you, and, and the funny thing is, it's great advice to say don't bet anything but the best number. You know why? Because since 97% of bettors lose over the long term in sports, if you anything that will make you bet less is good advice. Hey, I'll give you some better advice. Bet half as much and half as many games. And if you lose, I just saved you a ton of money. <laughs>
No, it's true. Yeah. And the old joke is, well, what's the optimal bat when you have a negative expectation? Zero. But some people do this recreationally. Some people are spy. The only way to learn how to win is playing. You just hopefully don't lose too much along the way. But if you have true aspirations to win, you keep playing. Just make sure you don't play enough that you care, but no more. Because that's that you could say mind bet it till you start winning, but you can't because you can't take it as seriously as if you care. But there you go. Now, we got one other best bet from Diamond Dave Esler. Now, you might think, what's Diamond Dave betting at this point, also known as Uncle Dave? He's got a Heisman bet, and it's a juicy 20-to-1 payoff. Let's listen. I like in my bet Bijan Robinson running back Texas 20 to run for the Heisman. Um, he's only a sophomore. It took 72 years for a sophomore to win the first one. Uh, that was back when Tebow did it. Uh, the last time it was done, it had to be a running back. In fact, Mark Ingram. You know, this kid started the last six games for Texas, rushed for over 700 yards, eight yards a carry. He also had 15 receptions for almost 200 yards, two touchdowns. And, you know, for those that don't know, this kid, Robinson, he was recruited by everyone, including the likes of Alabama, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Oklahoma. So he's not unknown. Fast forward to this year, Texas has an untested quarterback, so without Ellinger, the running game will be more prominent. Their schedule is easy. They play in a conference not known for defense. And they've only got one road game at Iowa State that's not really a stat builder for this kid. You know, wide receiver won the Heisman last year. Derrick Henry won it in 2015. So I'm betting that we won't see a third Oklahoma quarterback in five years win it. I think Robinson will. B. John Robinson, 20 to 1 to win the Heisman Trophy. Ooh, I like this. But if you actually think about the Heisman winners, it's changed so much in the last five or six years. Whereas before, it almost was like the year before was like the year to get everyone familiar with you. And then the next year, you can win it. But now we have situations, and this has been five, six, seven years ago. That Texas, I can't remember who the quarterback was. Hill, I think, was his last name. Played on a Monday or played on like a Thursday night opening game. Guy puts up 350 yards or something. And literally, he was 100 to 1 to win the Heisman and was the second favorite. The internet, the telephone, the telegraph, <laughs> smoke signal, no. all the technology today has made it where someone can become a national name, literally on a reality show, you know, two episodes in. And thus, there's so many more viable winners of the Heisman. There's a lot of people who would have won in the past that didn't if they were in the modern media environment. And what does that favor? The long shots. 20 to 1 is a decent long shot, but not enough for me. So personally, I might put a pizza bet on it, but I like to, I'd rather play a a uh, a very sharp medley of a hundred to one shots, you know. But maybe pick five of them, and effectively be playing a twenty to one if any of them win. You know something? Let's do a request of Esler. Let tell him we want as many long shots as he feels good about. You know, three, four, five, and um, in the next couple of weeks we'll uh, hopefully have it. Got it. You like that idea, McKenzie? Yeah, yeah. I like the portfolio ideas of betting. All right. Last thing. I don't typically play a huge chunk from SOV, 
But these are topics that I wanted to touch on with the pod audience. And quite frankly, it was the first time around was as good as I'm going to do. And there was great interaction with Jonas. And I couldn't do any better. So I want to give you guys the very best. So it's a nice chunk coming up, about 35 minutes. But I really think it's worth a listen. And it gets into that question of the 76ers and if they truly believe in the process, how their decision is not going to be what I think it's going to be. And maybe the process is going to be gutted from the inside by non-believers. But maybe that happened a long time ago. Check it out. And we'll be back with uh, Talent in Studio next week. Let's start with the 76ers and a historic um, fold, a historic allowing a team to come back. And if you consider the game before, I don't know if we've ever seen two games with this kind of comeback late to to have a team take a series lead. Yeah, it was a little role reversal. The Atlanta sports fan is used to their teams having a big league and blowing that lead. But last night it was the other way around. Philadelphia at home with a monster lead over the Atlanta Hawks, only to see it all dwindle away late. And it was Atlanta, a 109-106 win. The Hawks have a 3-2 series lead. Now, Jonas, that was a little mean of you, wasn't it? Yeah, had a little color. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine there's any Atlanta fan that would have taken this win over the Super Bowl win? And what's well, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, it just, you know, you got to you got to focus on what's the present. And the present is your team isn't known as the team that blows lead. It's it's the 76ers <laughs> now. So. Systematically scapegoated and demonized. <laughs> That's Jonas Knox, everyone. I'm R.J. Bell. (laughs) What's interesting is, I don't know if you saw this, you probably did, Jonas, is based on some of the calculations of what the odds were for the uh, uh, Patriots to come back, it was 98.7% that Atlanta or the Falcons would win. And last night, it was exactly 98.7% that Philadelphia (laughs) would hold the lead. So it was actually, uh, based on the one algorithm, an identical unlikely comeback. It really was that unlikely. And listen, it's 6 Eastern. You've heard all the stuff, and it's noteworthy. I mean, Embiid and Curry, the only two to score a bucket in the entire second half. Ben Simmons in the fourth quarter, zero field goal attempts. Zero. Didn't even bother trying. And you know how many he had game before? Zero. So when you have a big two in theory, and one of the big two has zero field goal attempts in two fourth quarters, that's half of a game, not good, not good. And we've heard, uh, you know, a lot of the other you know, shocking trends and all that, and and uh, or at least takeaways from the game. Simmons, 33% now, field goals on the playoffs, across the playoffs, second worst in the modern era. Dwight Howard, Ryan Rosillo had this today, had a usage rate higher than Ben Simmons. So think about this. Creaky Dwight Howard wins the title with the Lakers last year, and they don't even retain him, and he's actually handling the ball shooting, passing, assisting, all the things that go into usage more than Ben Simmons in the game. And 
I will say this, and we can act like I didn't say it, but we'd be lying. And as I always say, I'd rather brag a little bit and be truthful than be falsely modest. Jonas Embiid did not look good again late in these games, and it could have been that he, we thought maybe it was he, he tweaked that knee and in the fourth quarter or the second half of the prior game, we saw the result of the tweaked knee. But he looked mighty good in the first half, but didn't look so good or looked horrible. Even though Embiid was one of the ones getting buckets, he certainly didn't have a good fourth quarter. And to me, that was a sign. And I can, I can pull the fourth quarter stuff up right now. But to me, that's a sign. So this was game five, the most recent game, fourth quarter. Embiid was one of five on field goal attempts, one of five. And we were wondering, and we said, we called him out. Why is he in games, as you said, that's been decided, meaning one games. Now, maybe in hindsight, they needed him in because they could have gave up another lead. But it felt like it was a sure thing at that point. He's still in, and now it looks like his knee isn't so much tweaked. It looks like he's getting fatigued late in these games. What are you seeing with Embiid? Yeah, no, it's fatigue. He, he looks tired in these games. He got off to a hot start. And I think we all kind of expected that because he played so poorly in the prior game that you thought, okay, he's going to come out fired up and Philadelphia is going to be, you know, extra motivated and excited in front of their home crowd. And Embiid came out like that. And it had all the makings of a blowout. It, it just seemed like we were going to go to a game six and the Hawks were going to try and survive on their home floor. And then he just looked more and more gassed as the game went on. Atlanta was hitting shots. Philadelphia's uh, players outside of their number one couldn't get a bucket. And it, there was no answers. And then he goes to the foul line, misses two free throws late. It was just a bad ending to a really strong start for Joel Embiid. I mean, talk about a blowout. They had a 26-point lead. But if you look at it, they were up by 24 uh, in this before halftime, then 25, then 26, all the way. So the last mm, five minutes of the second quarter, they're up right around 25. Then there's a little bit of a run of Atlanta after halftime, but they're back up to 26 as you move into the third quarter. And as late as like two minutes left in the third, they're up by like 23. So, I mean, this is, and that's where it was at 98.7. It's one thing to be up 26 right after halftime, but to be up 23 with only 14 minutes left in the game, that is the shocker of all shockers. And if you look at the actual uh, likelihood of winning line, it looks like a big, someone just ate a big hot fudge sundae and it's all gutted out and right at the top, <laughs> it came up the other way. I mean, it was like with, I mean, it looked like with maybe, eight minutes left in the game, even though they were coming back, they were still so far behind. I mean, they were down by 10 with like four minutes left. And again, that's not insurmountable, but even those kind of leads are, are, are well over 90%. And the only lead, there was one time the game was tied and one lead change. The entire game, there was one lead change. Philly took off, ran out, and then just Atlanta, one step at a time, came back. Trey Young, I mean, how much do you upgrade Trey Young at this point? 
I mean, he's been one of the, I think, breakout stars of the postseason. Not, I mean, just from, you know, style of play and all that, he's an exciting player, but he's been really, really good. Uh, he's especially been good on the road. I think uh, we talked about this, the, the feedback from Madison Square Garden and the fact that they made him the villain, I think, speaks volumes about where the respect level is for him because you only, you only get that type of reaction, like a Reggie Miller type reaction, if they respect your game. So his game is being respected uh, opposing fans are attacking him which tells you the threat is real and then he's only uh, he's shown up virtually every game this postseason and played at a high level and I don't know that a lot of people saw that because he's always the guy that's compared to Luka Doncic uh, based on their draft day experiences yeah no doubt and I think the the number of shots that he took early in his career Trey Young the Luka trade and the choice with Luka I, it certainly has colored the commentary on Young. What we're seeing is he's built for the playoffs, it would seem. He's not afraid, and he's a good passer. And that's the thing I think that even when these playoffs started, most people didn't see how good of a passer Trey Young is. Though he doesn't love the pass, he can do it. And right. to me, that's an important skill set for him. And uh, you would think, oh, my God, disaster for Philly – but if you look now at game six, the 76ers are favored by three points. Three points. So, Mackenzie, if we look back at the archive of the line, what has Philly, Philly on the road, what's the line been the prior games? So it looks like, uh, hold on, just give me two seconds. Okay, yeah, I mean, no reason to have this game up. <laughs> he's, he's handicap. He's handicapping the night game. All right, I, I got it here. So in game three, they were two point favorites, and in game four, they were two and uh, three and a half point favorites. Was the close? Okay, so now think about that. The game four was after destruction in game two, Philly dominating, tying at one one. Then Philly went to Atlanta on that Friday night, dominated, and it was like, uh oh. The only concern was a weekend in Atlanta for Philly seemed like that was a problem. But at that point, it felt like, in hindsight, it looked like that was a problem. But that line felt like they were saying the series was over, that they had solved Trey Young, and now it's three, three and a half Philly. Jonas, we have pretty much the same line right here. So what the market is saying is, yes, Atlanta has pulled two shockers, but we still believe the Sixers are fundamentally the better team by a big margin. When you're a three-point road favorite, I mean, it's saying you're at least five points better. Five points better. Doesn't, doesn't Philly's inability to keep a lead, doesn't it make you disinclined to think that the Sixers are five points better? As a fan, does that seem right? No, it doesn't seem right, especially last night happened at home. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, Atlanta's got, you know, momentum and the, and the crowd is behind them and they're, you know, on firing on all cylinders. Like we saw Brooklyn the other night. They played with emotion and they did so at home, which which you, you would think had a little bit of a factor in them getting into that game. That was at home in Philadelphia melted down. So the idea that we're still that confident in a team which should have had every reason to want to close the door and, and, and close up that game last night in strong fashion based on what happened in the previous game. The fact that there's still faith in that team heading into Atlanta in game six, I, unless unless the feeling is they're just a significantly better team 
in the eyes of a lot of people, I just don't know how you're confident in that team right now. I think that we believe they were significantly a better team after game, especially after game three. I mean, there really yeah. was a sense it was over. The fact this line is the same as it was entering game three as if the prior two games haven't even happened. I mean, yeah. think about it. What's happened is, uh, or, or I guess in, um, let's think about that. Yeah, it was game three and then game four. So, uh, hmm, that's interesting. In game, I mean, game four was the the highest line. That was after the weekend. And to me, what's happened since is in game four they gave up a big lead, and in game five they gave up a big lead. So the only thing that's happened is Atlanta's come back twice, and the line hasn't moved any since the last time that Philly was in Atlanta. And you know why? It's because it's an elimination game. But I'm going to pose this. I don't know if that's a positive for this team that has trouble with pressure. And also, their best player has shown you a significant, I don't want to say decline physically, but he's shown you that he's at least compromised. And then he showed you last night that he's compromised late in a game to where he was clearly fatigued and landed awkwardly again on his knee and was a little bit hobbled at one point during that fourth quarter. So I don't know how, you, how that leads to anybody's confidence level. I agree. So here's what we're going to do. When we come back, two things. One, I may have a best bet already on this game, and it's not going to be on the game itself. I'm going to look to approach this early best bet another way. Also, I think there's a question the Sixers have to answer, and it's not is Ben Simmons coming back or not. It's rather something a gambler can answer best, and we'll try to do it for him. So, RJ, we've been talking a lot about those games from last night, and we started the show talking about the collapse in Philadelphia with the Atlanta Hawks on the road taking a 3-2 series lead, but underdogs coming up in Game 6 at home. Yeah, so let's do this first, though. Let's deliver on the tease in which we talked about a humongous decision that a gambler, that a professional that bet sports is probably better able to make than a GM. And speaking of that, I don't know if you've been reading Jonas with the Dallas Mavs and a former yeah. sports better and, and and now with the coach, uh, the only championship Carlisle ever of the Mavs was, was the guy that got it is out. What a power disruption. And obviously Luca's pulling off based on the athletic, Luca is the king of this place. Like if someone says, looks at him the wrong way, <laughs> Mark Cuban doesn't even sit beside him anymore. But, but here's the question the Sixers need to answer. And the thing to think about with the Sixers is if they can somehow get past this round, and really right now the odds say it's a 60% chance that Atlanta gets there, but a 40% chance that Philly does. So, I mean, it's it's not big at all, the idea of, like, what kind of Dutch or what kind of um, hole Philly has to dig themselves out of. Let's assume they – let's, for the sake of this conversation, accept that it's very possible. And I think that's not even debatable. It's possible. Okay. If Harden or Kyrie get hurt in a major way, or I guess we don't even know if Kyrie's coming back, when, yeah. if – so Harden pulls out a hamstring again, and he's playing tonight, right? Is, isn't Philly a favorite to get to the finals at that point if they get past the Hawks? I mean, if, if you only got one, if it's only Durant, Philly's a big favorite, don't you think? 
I would think so. I mean, that, that would be my going, especially leading into, or even just a couple of games ago, my, my thought would be if the injuries continue to pile up for Brooklyn, but they still get past Milwaukee, that the feeling for me is that Philadelphia would have the advantage. I think that, well, I guess the injuries are the driver, right? But with only KD, yeah. I think they have the um, advantage for sure, for sure. Yeah. Now, so what we're saying here is that they have almost a 50% chance to get to the conference finals, the Sixers, and they'd be favored if just one thing happens you know, Harden hurts himself again, you know, which seems to be pretty possible. And then are they going to be what against who? I mean, maybe the Clippers, if they get hot, are going to be favored over them. But what we're saying here is this Philadelphia team could win the title this year and it not be that big of a deal, meaning yeah. it, it wouldn't be that shocking if they won a title this year. But also, on the herd right here in FSR today, Colin spent 10 minutes talking about that this was a necessary, painful experience because Philly, this tells Philadelphia for sure that this isn't going to work with Simmons and that it's time to bust it up. Now, how can there be at the same time, and I think that's a very valid, if, if Philly could easily lose this next game too and be eliminated and at that point I think the temptation to bust it up is going to be strong so we have a team that very well could win their first title since 1983 and the process payoff and that same team could have one of the worst defeats in memory if not worst for them and if you can I mean not just for Philadelphia but if you consider giving up those two leads it, it, for a number one seed to go out in the second round it'll be one of the worst losses in the last 20 years this century how do we think of those two things at the same time and you know what no matter which of the two happen the other one could have happened meaning if somehow they lose this next game the Sixers it doesn't mean they couldn't have won the title it means it just a shot or two maybe fell one way and they lost, but they could have won. And if they would have won the one game, they would have won a title. Don't forget Toronto against Milwaukee a couple years ago. Uh, Toronto was uh, down 0-2. Game three went into overtime. There was two or three shots that, that, that Milwaukee had to go up 3-0. Literally shots where the ball was in the air. The time's ticking off, Jones, you probably remember. And if they yeah. would have made it, it would have been you know, insurmountable in theory. But the, one, the shot didn't fall. Toronto wins in overtime, and they win a title. It happens like that. So this Sixers decision is probably going to be driven by what happens, but should it be? That's the question. That's what a gambler is going to think about because what you got to answer one question. This is the question, and no, I haven't heard anyone ask it. Is what's happening to the Sixers bad luck, or is this something about this team? Because it very well, we could say, hey, Embiid made 20 straight free throws, and he missed two. It's almost, you know, statistically so unlikely. Choker, choker, Simmons won't shoot in the fourth quarter. You know, he, she, he's scared. And, oh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Doc has had a few losses when they've had leads in series. 
and, and no one else has really said this that I've heard, but Daryl Morey, the GM, is kind of known for letting some leads go late at Houston. Yeah. So it feels like they almost said, well, we got a Sixers team that, that doesn't seem to step up when the pressure's on. Who's the best coach that will bring in the most hacks, the most bad juju when it comes to close games in the playoffs? Well, Doc Rivers. Well, bring him in. And who's the GM that has the, you know, he's probably the most renowned for giving up leads, Houston up 3-2 to the Golden State Warriors, et cetera, et cetera, twice. Oh, look, Daryl Morey, let's get him. <laughs> I mean, no one's really talked about like the confluence of all these chokers, or are they chokers? Or has it all been bad luck, Jonas? What's your gut feeling on it? Because that answer, if they're chokers, you've got to break them up. If they're not chokers, how can you break up a team that very easily could win a title this year? I think the injuries to Brooklyn and the injuries out West have changed the expectations for a couple of teams, most notably Philadelphia and Milwaukee, because it feels like those are the two teams that if they don't get over the hump this year with the injuries changing the expectations for what they were you know, supposed to do in the postseason, even though Philly was the number one seed, everybody still looked at Brooklyn like the team to beat. I think the injuries change the expectations on the fly, and, and that's sort of where we're at when it comes to what's going to happen because the two teams that are going to see over to, uh, a bunch of overhauls, uh, if it doesn't go the way that, that, it's, that it was projected to go after the injuries, are going to be Milwaukee and Philadelphia. Well, first off, obviously, and you see this too, only one of them could may even make the finals. So yeah, by but- definition, one of them is going to be a big failure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, based on injuries. Yeah, and, and, and what I'm saying is, as fans, I see that perspective. But if you're a decision maker in Philadelphia, if you're the ownership group in Philadelphia, do you let – in sports betting, and this is why a gambler is best suited for this, in sports betting it's called being too results-based. So the classic thing in Hold'em is you get it in good with a set, three of a kind – and they've got a flush draw, and you actually, it's not only, you know, it's river time, it's not only they got to hit the flush, but they can't pair up, and boom, the flush hits. Did you do wrong? No. I mean, in poker, you just kind of shake it off. Now, listen, sometimes if you have a couple of those in a row, it can be tough to shake it off. But it, it, and the irony here is they say trust the process. Or at least it's pro- it's at least they say be process oriented. Don't be results based. Wouldn't we only be results based if we let how this game and another couple games go? What does that really mean in the scheme of how good Simmons and Embiid is? When when Buffalo missed that field goal against the Giants and Bill Parcells. Uh, Norwood, 48 yards, missed it. Did that really say anything about the Bills organization? No. Right? So Marv Levy didn't get fired, thankfully. (laughs) Well, maybe not. Maybe the Bills think maybe if he did with Thurman Thomas and Jim Kelly and Andre Reid, and that was my Tecmo team, by the way, (laughs) is it could be a a situation where they could have won a title with someone else. Who knows? But it just strikes me that for an organization – that had the motto, trust the process, that had hedge fund guys owning it, 
had a hedge fund type running it initially during the process. They are going to likely be faced with, are they going to be results-based or are they going to be process-based? And if you are process-based, what's your conclusion from this series? Is it that, yes, we're just prone to give up 25-point leads? Or is it it's about a 2% chance we'd give up a 20-point lead and it happened? And things like that happen. Trust the process. What would you, so, Jonas, if you were the GM, and my best bet's coming up in 30 seconds, what would you do if the Sixers lose in game six? I would see what I could get on the market for Ben Simmons. And not that I would, you know, no doubt what trade would you him have to no get, matter what. What would you have to get for him to think it's a true? Where do you have Simmons ranked one to what? Is he number? Is he a top 20 player to you? Oh, God. I don't know. No, I don't think he's a top 20 player. Top 40? Um, yeah, yeah, I would say top 40. Um, just, I mean, he's a, a great defender, um, you know, makes, you know, a, a good passer, good decision maker on the floor. He just can't score. He can't shoot. And, and it seems like he's afraid to at this point. Uh, just based on some of the criticism he's gotten and how it looks. So because of that, that's a major part of today's NBA that he doesn't doesn't supply. And so if I could get some a player in return, maybe a draft pick, somebody that I felt like was an upgrade as a score that could take the load off Joel Embiid uh, for, on a nightly basis, then then I would go that direction. But, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. I'm just going to trade him for anything. That's Jonas Knox. McKenzie, Bill Simmons did a top 40 on his pod. See if it's somewhere where there's a list. I want to look at the, um, like, five or six players between, like, 28 and 32 and we'll see if Jonas would trade Ben Simmons for these players because it'll be interesting to see where that threshold is if we can find the list. Here's my best bet, and I am going to give it out impromptu style. Oh, we have the list up, Jonas. Is we are taking the 76ers in the first half of the game on Friday, tomorrow. That's in Atlanta. Now, the game line is minus three. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, the Sixers have played really poorly in the second half. <laughs> and you know what? They've played shockingly good in the first half. So, I mean, if you, if you just look at the first half, Mackenzie, pull up the chart that we got all the game flows. And what, what's been, or, or I guess you could just look at the box score because they're going to have the half. What's been the halftime lead of Philly uh, in these games? And I guess maybe in the first game they were behind. I can't remember. Yeah, the first game they were behind. Uh, second game they were up by 10. All right, so Philly up by 10. Go ahead. Third game they were up by 18. Okay, 18. I like it. Fourth game they were up by 18 at half. Okay. And fifth game? One second. Yesterday's game. Wow. Uh, like 25, right? Yeah, 21-point lead at half. I think there's a trend I see, Jonas. <laughs> and you know what? Typically, the market would account for this. You would think if the line's minus three, you'd be like, maybe it's going to be minus three in the first half and pick them in the second. Nope, they're not accounting for it. Right now, you can get Philly in the first half minus one and a half. Exactly half of minus three. Do the math. This is exploiting the cockroaches, Jonas. They just had, no one's jumped on this yet. Cockroaches. <laughs> cockroaches, yeah. I mean, can you really, I mean, whatever doubt you, I mean, how much better do you like Philly in the first half than you'd like Philly for the game? 
Oh, especially, you know, this is going to be multiple games in a row. They've needed to come out and make a statement on a previous ending to the to the prior game. And, and we've B won't be fatigued? Them. No, not going to be fatigued. Yeah, I think it makes all the sense in the world. All right, so before we go to what's trending, here is... All right, so this is interesting. Is Ben Simmons is number 27 on Bill Simmons' list. So I'm going to give you two guys before it and two guys after it. Two before him, 25, Julius Randle. 26, Jalen Brown. 28, Bam from Miami. And 29, injured in all, Clay Thompson. Let's set Clay Thompson aside because of the injury issue. And let's go with number 30, DeAndre Ayton. So you've got four teams or four players to consider. Ayton, Bam, Jalen Brown, Julius Randle. After we see what's trending, you're going to tell us who of those four you would trade Ben Simmons for. First, though, let's see what's trending. I want to hear a yes or no as I rattle off these names. Julius Randle, do you take him for Ben Simmons? No. Jalen Brown. Yes. Bam Adebayo. No. DeAndre Ayton. No. Boy, you love Ben Simmons. <laughs> That's Jonas Knox. <laughs> I'm, I'm RJ Bell. Hey, let's get to the Clippers real quick. We got a couple of real insightful things with the Clips game. Yeah, and the uh, L.A. Clippers get it done. No Kawhi, no problem. On the road, 119-111 the final. Surprisingly, L.A., a significant underdog going into that game, as we discussed yesterday, but they get it done. They have a 3-2 series lead. McKenzie had one of the best breaks he's ever had. (laughs) And it's so funny. He, like, rattled off three things that were, like, literally once-a-week level insights from him. Three in one break. And Spencer was sitting there with a smirk on his face. I just couldn't wait for Spencer to say, I've been freeing him him up for this kind of thinking. So, but he didn't say it, though he was tempted. All right, so this is McKenzie's insight, but I won't, uh, you know, I won't punish the audience with having him say it. Is Smart. (laughs) Yes, very smart. Is if you look at the closing line, Clippers were nine-point underdogs against the Jazz. So it's fair to say that they were considered to be, without Kawhi, six points worse than Utah if you don't consider home court. Okay. Now, if you look at the game coming up in which the Clippers are two-point home underdogs to Utah, it implies that they're four points worse than Utah. So there's been a two-point adjustment. That's a massive adjustment. The market has said, hey, Utah, you're not near as good relative to the Clippers as we thought you were. We're going to upgrade the Clippers two points without Kawhi. That is a drastic big upgrade. But still, they're four points worse, and that's why they're only, the Clippers, 60%, only 60% to win the series. Everyone thinks it's a lock, 60%. And it's exactly the same as the Hawks and Sixers, you know why? Because the Hawks are just about the same shortfall from Philly as the Clippers are without Kawhi to the Jazz. It's fascinating. And then the second McKenzie point, he said, what's fascinating is Utah actually has the worst odds to win the series, 40% chance, but they have a better odds to win the title. Right now, the title odds, 8-1 to one for Utah, 9-1 to one for the Clippers. 
And then he connected the dots. This means that inside info is out, Kawhi's out for the playoffs. There's no yeah. way that Clippers could have. Now, that's not official, is it, Jonas, that he's out? No, no it, it's kind of a wait-and-see approach. But, you know, they're not even saying specifically what the ACL injury is. It's just that it's an ACL injury. These are, I mean, listen, if one team is 40% to advance, but they've got better odds to win the title, that means that you think that team is, Utah in this case, is much better, even though they might lose a series. And the only way Utah's better than the Clippers is without Kawhi.